0: Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us.
1: All of the people you're about to meet, both um, the actresses and Tom Hooper, have done incredible work both on stage and screen. So Claire Bloom... Um, Who, of course, movie lovers fell in love with with uh, her appearance in in *Limelight*, the Charlie Chaplin film. But she's done many films, including *The Chapman Report* and *Richard III*. On stage, has done some wonderful interpretations of Blanche DuBois, and we are so thrilled that she is with us tonight. Please welcome Claire Bloom. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Ely also has some, some great stage credits, and she was in a production um, of Streetcar Named Desire, but in that case, it was her mother, Rosemary Harris, who played Blanche Dubois. She was a toddler, but she was, um, that was her first performance. She won a Tony Award for her performance in, in The Real Thing. Her f- films include Pride and Glory and Sunshine, and uh, please welcome Jennifer Ely. And if you happen to watch the Golden Globes yesterday and you saw Tom Hooper there and we're thinking, is he really going to be in Astoria tomorrow? Um, he'll explain how he did it. Um, he has um, done a number of great films. He directed the HBO miniseries, the great miniseries, John Adams. Um, and a kind of somewhat, I think, overlooked film, a wonderful movie called The Damned United. And... Uh, And, of course, this has been a great triumph for him, this um, film of The King's Speech. And here he is, right from Los Angeles. Uh, Please welcome Tom Hooper.
2: What an absolutely stunning cinema.
1: Thank you. We think so too. We're happy with it. And you have a, a great <laughs> and you're our first live people on stage to do Q and A. So <laughs>
2: you all look quite alive. We're very honoured to be the very first Q and A.
1: I did want to ask about your trip from Los Angeles because I, I was wondering how you were going to make it here in time. You said so.
2: um, I, I think I finished at the Golden Globe parties at 5 a.m. and got on a plane at 7 a.m. So that's how it's done. <laughs>
1: Uh, and our off—you sh- said Chicago and London and Los Angeles. After that, right?
2: But I promise you coherence at all times tonight.
1: <laughs> That's pretty good. That's a high bar. Um, well, I'm, I'm wondering. Of course, you're all enjoying. I think the the response to the film. So I'm just wondering if you could if you could talk um, about what you think it is that people are responding to about this movie. It's done incredibly incredibly well. Not just with the reviews and all the award nominations, but um, the audience response. It's made a lot of money for a film that maybe when people described the idea initially thought didn't think this was going to be a big moneymaker, a film about a stuttering king. So uh, could you talk about what you think people responded to?
0: Shall I start? Oh, sure. Uh, I think they respond to the fact that uh, a, a crippled man wins... You know, it's a very uplifting film. But I also have a theory of my own, and that is that people of my generation, and I don't think this refers to it, uh, younger people, had the dream always that the queen came to tea. Mm. Thought, oh, this is very strange. The queen, here's a queen in my house. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? And uh, it brings you into that kind of relationship with these so-called mythical people, and I guess they were... Are. That, uh, that you would never have otherwise um, a very intimate relationship with George VI and his, his queen. Um, my theory may be uh, absolute rubbish, but um, <laughs> sounds... uh, I kind of thought it meant something at one time. <laughs>
1: no, it sounds like a good theory, and, and you have yeah. one of the most delightful scenes in the film. when, when... Exactly. So could you talk maybe about that scene when, when you realize who's sitting there at your table when you come in?
3: Um, well I mean you all just saw it so <laughs> right. I don't know what else there is to say really except that um it uh it was a lot of fun to shoot <laughs> cuz um they're very funny uh Helena and Colin and Jeffrey they they were very funny together they had great um rapport and so it was a lot of fun um, to be there doing it with them uh, I I don't know I love I I love that Love, I, it was. It's also in the um, originally, and it was cut some, but um, originally uh, it was more of a scene. There was more between Helena, uh, between the Queen and and Myrtle, and um, actually Myrtle, Loke, um, her she loved to play bridge, and her bridge partner was George Bernard Shaw, <laughs> and um, that was in it originally. <laughs>
1: Could you talk about... Well, I guess it it may be your idea about what what you think it is that that is causing such a great response to the film.
2: Um, It's interesting. I mean, in in the UK, it's sort of gone from being successful into kind of strange phenomenon territory where in eight days it outgrossed the entire box office of the Queen. Um, And I think on... uh, and it's you know, been number one since it opened a week ago, and it's the, the highest-grossing film for the distributor in, of all time. Um, I think it's even kept pace with Harry Potter in its first week. I mean, you know, it's that kind of. And so, um, and, and, and explaining that, I, I don't, I'm not sure I can. But I mean, I, I certainly, um, it's obviously speaking quite deeply to people. I think it's, a, I think it's possibly something about the period. I mean, we're, we're you know that was a period where you're coming out of a Great Depression and you're going into war and we're coming out of an economic crisis facing various asymmetric threats to our security. So there's there's a sort of strange symmetry between the 30s and now. Um, but I but I think in the end people are responding to it because of that the combination of humour and emotion. Um, and, and the way I think when you're made to laugh, it opens you up emotionally more. And then when emotion comes, you're actually... You have less defence against it, and and um, and it talks about you know, the big themes of finding your voice and courage and friendship, um, and you know although it's about although it deals with the stammering, I mean I think we all have blocks that lie between us and the best version of ourselves, whether it's shyness or insecurity or you know or stress or something physical. And a stammer is just a very profound version of a block that lies between a person and their best selves and seeing seeing this man overcome this and 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 arrive at this best version of himself is is hugely inspiring because that's kind of what we're all involved with uh at some level throughout our lives
1: in in your answer you talked about sort of the big social issues and and sort of what's going on in the world at the time and this yearning for kind of leadership perhaps, but then these very intimate issues as well. And I think that's what's behind a lot of the fascination people have had with the idea of the royal family. Certainly American audiences are very fascinated. Well, I
2: mean, it's very appropriate to be sitting here um, on Martin Luther King's birthday talking about the power of speech-making. It's also ironic because when I first Googled the title of my own movie two years ago, (laughs) all I got was references to Martin Luther King and I Had a Dream. (laughs) <laughs> and I feel slightly embarrassed that now if you put the king's speech into Google, we've unfortunately displaced the great Martin Luther King, and he's a little bit further down the menu. Um, um, but uh, no, I think, I th- I th- I think it's, it, it's ex- extraordinary, the power of communication. And, and, and I think the surprising thing about King George the Sixth is that the very thing that you would have thought would have been a barrier, which is his stammer, um, became an asset. Because... Uh, subsequent to making the film i've written i've read these wonderful descriptions during the war of how pe- the nation knew he stammered and as they sat down they they were charged with the suspense of his stammer and they used to sit and hope that he would get through it mm-hmm. without failing without stammering and his continued ability to do that became became a kind of metaphor for the war effort it became a kind of talismanic uh thing that you know as long as he can keep getting through it then we'll be okay um and, and the fact that his that his stammer his disability actually became and the overcoming of it became sort of, sort of connected with the idea of English endurance is very interesting
1: I was curious how well people knew this story. I know you were quite a young girl actually in, uh, when this uh, when the war broke out, but did you did you have an awareness of um, of this this particular story, this piece of history no
0: of course not of course not, but i I did know that the king stammered i don 't know how I knew that you know when. <laughs> As a child, I you hear things, um, and that he was very much loved. I think probably yes, for the fact that he'd overcome this, mm-hmm. and that of course that he was there. You know that they both stayed in Buckingham Palace during the war, etc., etc. But yes, I, I, I think it was it was known even to someone you know as young as I was.
2: <laughs> and I think it's the other reason for perhaps for its success is that. Is there, is a, there is a delicious sense of discovery in the film because, I mean, in England, yes, you know, aspects of King George VI story are known, but no one really knew that the guy who helped him was this maverick Australian, self-taught, failed Shakespearean actor, <laughs> speech specialist called Lionel Logue. And in fact, when I started working on it, we knew we knew so little about him. We didn't have a photograph of him. We didn't know his sons' names. Um, we had we had the the logue that David Seidler had wonderfully invented based on really just footnotes in history books and the and the the real thrill of this film was that nine weeks before the shoot, uh, my wonderful production designer tracked down the grandson of Lionel Logue Mark, mm. who was living in London ten minutes from where I live, and in his attic he had some. A filing cabinet, and in one of the drawers of the filing cabinet was some papers, and amongst those papers was a handwritten diary account of his grandfather's relationship with the king, that no one knew existed, that no historian has ever read, that no member of the royal family has ever seen. And nine weeks before the shoot, I have effectively a completely new primary source, an insight into King George the Sixth, that no one knew was there, and 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 we set about. David, uh, David said about furiously rewriting the script with, with all our suggestions to, to take advantage of this. And, and, and I think, I think that the fact that we're not just, we're not just doing you know, the David and Wallace story, yet another version, where really there's no new information. All you could do if you told the, the abdication story was take a new angle, but there's no new information, whereas we actually had new information, and that's very rare. Some of the best lines in the film are written hmm. by King George VI and Lionel Logue. And one example would be at the end of the big speech, Lionel turns to the king and says, you still stammered on the W. And the king says, well, I had to throw in a fuse, they knew it was me. <laughs> <laughs> Those lines last spoken out loud by King George VI and Lionel Logue. A direct quote from the diary. Hmm.
1: And this was a stage production?
2: Um, yes, I mean, and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was an unproduced stage production that hmm. a fringe theatre was trying and failing uh, to produce. So that, that's how unlikely the whole thing was.
1: <laughs> so, so tell us how. I mean, I have to ask how you put this cast together. This is about one of the most amazing ensembles you could imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I did. Included. Yeah, I mean, I did sit in the rehearsal room and look across the table and think. Well, you know, not only is it Colin Firth, Geoffrey Rush, Helena Bonham Carter, Guy Pearce. It's Sir Michael Gambon. It's Sir Derek Jacobi. It's the great Claire Bloom. It's jennifer ely it's anthony andrews who you may remember from playing sebastian in brides had revisited many years ago uh, an iconic performance in british television uh, it's timothy spall and it, and and the, the 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 cinematic and theatrical history in rehearsal room is, was formidable and i think i don't know whether it's the same in america but the, the, it is amazing in england how you can get actors of this caliber uh, frankly not working on you know, working for, for less than they're meant to um, to come in and play, play, you know, play two scenes or three scenes and you can have that kind of level of talent across the board and it's a, it's a very special thing about, uh, about the English ensemble tradition that you can work in that way
1: I'd like to open it up and take some questions from the audience we have very good acoustics in here so, so raise your hand and uh, if anybody has a question I think Ray in the back Yeah, no? you're just waving Okay, right here. Um, uh, for
2: the That's me. <laughs> <laughs> what
1: initially drew you to the story? What drew you to the story?
2: Um, it's because it's the fact that I'm myself half Australian, half English, and I grew up in London. And I, for a long time, been looking for either an Australian story to tell or something that dealt with that very particular Relationship between the English and the Australians, and of course that material is hard to come by. And when I read the script, it spoke to me partly because one of the narratives of my childhood was my mother, my Australian mother, dealing with the effects of my father, of his childhood. My, My father lost his dad in the war at the age of two. My grandfather was a bomber navigator killed in 1942 at the tender age of 30. As a result, he was my dad was packed off to full time boarding school at the age of five. And, you know, it was the era of cold baths, even in the middle of winter, um, outside loose with no doors, uh, corporal punishment, all those great British educational innovations. <laughs> um, and and my mother was sort of brilliant within the family at saying, obviously, this sort of affected your father. And it's up to us as a family to to, to unlock him. And um, she was kind of in a much you know, gentler way than the film, the kind of Lionel Logue to my dad. And uh, I went from having a father who was not brilliantly connected to, 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 to a father who now says, you know, you're one of my ribs, and that's really thanks to my mum. So, so for me, it was a chance to, to, to tap into this very strong memory of, 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 of the, the Australian freedom in unlocking an Englishman uh, through the story of a king and a therapist.
1: Okay. Right down here. were there differences been working with Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush and what was it like working with them um
2: I mean they've got quite different energies I mean Jeffrey is like a five-year-old child with the most unbridled love and enthusiasm and wide-eyed wonderment for his craft and it's and you know there's not a night where he wouldn't have stayed up all night discussing the next day's work um and, you know, Colin is more of the reserved Englishman that you'd imagine. And, and one of the delights of the rehearsal room was, was, in a way, seeing a parallel to what happens in the film of Geoffrey's of, of, of infectious enthusiasm, sort of breaking down some of Colin's sort of um, inhibitions, I suppose, to, to inhibitions to being openly enthusiastic. <laughs> and he quickly became as enthusiastic as Geoffrey. As um, but I think, I mean, I, uh, it's hard to ask, answer it in general. I mean, they're, they're both... Um, I mean, you know, there's there's interesting sort of exchanges that happen. I mean, Jeffrey is brilliant at using his body. He was trained at Lecoq in Paris, the the famous mime school, when he when Jeffrey was in his twenties, and he talks in terms of the silhouette that a character creates. You know, the the line, the shape of the figure that's cut, and and I and I found when I was filming him, you know, sometimes. Uh, you know i'd I'd do a close-up first and i think i love what he's doing with his hands so then i'd go into a mid shot and i think i'm missing the whole shape he's making in the doorway so i'd go even wider and i and i would end up sort of changing my shooting style to capture that sense of the 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 shape and then then conan um in in a way not coming from the same tradition i then it then made me think about the way the, the shape of Colin's body, and and you know, rather than sitting in a chair very erect, I got him to sort of fold into the corner of a chair and crumple into himself, and 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 the way you know, and sit in the corners of sofas, and when he st- stood, to stand in a geeky way, and and it, and I think it was having Geoffrey there and, and being reminded of how powerful the body is, that 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 maybe pushed Colin to use it more. At the same at the same time, um, I think sort of. Colin's extraordinary minimalism. I mean, because he's a he's a he's a, he's an actor. When I think of his work, I tend to think of him as someone who, who who really can be incredibly minimalist. I think probably brought Jeffrey into a more minimalist place. And so, I think the thing that's really interesting when you are working with a, a number of actors is 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 allowing one to learn from the other and controlling that exchange in an interesting way.
1: Could you talk about Claire? You work, Miss Bloom. You work with um, Michael Gambon, one of my favorite actors. The scenes with um, the scenes between you and him, I think, were very touching. And and you convey your in your performance as Mary, convey a certain sense of what the royal family is supposed to be and behave. Could you talk about your those? scenes or your, your part in the film?
0: There was very little. No, I, I know, but,
1: but it was good. You made a it's
0: lot.
2: It's
1: very
0: hard for me to talk about it. <laughs> we, um, made an impression. we want to know
2: how you understand the English royal family so well.
0: <laughs> I'm by no means a royalist. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I understood. I understood up to a point that this poor woman was damaged, as I think they all are down to the present day. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that her life had been hell, frankly. Uh, can you imagine being married to George V? Wasn't he said, I I, I was afraid of my father, and my, my, I'm damn sure my children are going to be afraid of me. I bet she was afraid of him, too. Apparently, she was um, told by him that every night at dinner she had to dress in full the full gear, the pearls, the tiara, the whole thing. Um, I don't think she had any life with him, I doubt. And um, I suppose a certain affection builds up if you've lived together for <laughs> 60 years. But I don't know what kind of affection it could have been. I um, I was very sorry for her. And perhaps that made the little that I do interesting, because I didn't want to play her, you know, as a matriarch whatever that is um also um i did see this extraordinary film which you probably saw called the this the lost prince um about her son one of her many sons who was an epileptic Mm. and that was considered in those days that the royal family could have such a Child, a total disgrace, and he was placed in, he was very well treated, etc., etc. He was completely isolated. She went to see him as much as she could, and obviously, this was great suffering for her. And uh, he had his own household and a devoted nurse, but he was kept completely secret, completely apart from his brothers and sisters, and uh, probably his father never saw him. So All I'm really saying in a a roundabout way is that one feeds that kind of background into this Mm. so-called or appearing ice woman that she really wasn't. She was a a very damaged and Mm. uh, abused woman, I would think.
2: But I also think that's what's so extraordinary about what Claire does is, is you know is is, is, is that's sort the of tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. acting where where you suggest a whole world and a whole life um, w- when you don 't have the when you don 't have the in a way the the advantage of when you're playing a lead where you' where you 've got no. so much to structure it and actually i think it's very hard to to, to come in and, and suggest uh, the complexity of a lived life with without actually having you know lots of signposts and um, no
0: i was terrified because i usually I mean, of course I've played small parts, not perhaps as small as this. First of all, they say, no, there's no such thing as a small part, and I think that's true. Um, And secondly, I... No, I'm used to playing something that has a little more background. But luckily, this did have a historical background. You know, even if it was not such an imaginative background as one would want to bring to a part that you can think through, you know, as as an arc. But... um, one one was, I've, I sound like the Queen now, <laughs> I, I was able to to bring to it um, the little that I could find out about Queen Mary.
2: Uh, and would you tell the story that I only found out about two days ago, Claire?
0: Oh, yeah, I seem to have forgotten to tell you that, <laughs> that I, <laughs> I had actually met or was presented to, I think the expression is, Queen Mary when i was <laughs> i 'd kind of forgotten it when I, when I was eighteen and in a play in London called Ring Round the Moon," and she came to see it and sat in the royal box I, I presume it a matinee. she must have had her tea in the royal box. I mean, it was a world that was very different, and uh, we were taken was Paul Schofield and myself and the great Margaret Rutherford. To the box and presented to this lady where one curtsied or fell on one's face or something like that. (laughs) And uh, all I vaguely remember is these incredible earrings. She had wonderful big diamond earrings that were... you know, in, time uh, uh, confuses everything, and I probably put on her head the toque with the feather that she didn't wear, but I had seen in photographs. I mean, it's it's a long it's a long time ago.
1: These are great earrings, by the way.
0: Yeah, I, <laughs> it's just noticing. I like earrings. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Cieli, could, did, uh, did, could you talk about the, maybe the pleasures of uh, working within the genre of a costume film or period films or particular?
2: Don't use the word costume. Okay, film.
1: well, there are costumes. <laughs> it's a genre that you certainly... Uh, <laughs> You know, made very fresh and vital, and you've worked in it in a number of films, actually, right, some of your earliest films.
2: Are you films. asking me? Yeah, well, um, I was starting to. Uh, well, I, I was going to say one her, thing, but <laughs> is I, I, I find this phrase costume drama very offensive. And the reason I, I. And this is my theory about the phrase costume drama that it's actually a phrase used <laughs> by male critics to describe uh, mainly adaptation of literature written by women. Because if you think about it, it tends to be about Jane Austen, mm. it tends, tends to be about George Eliot. It tends to be about the Brontes. Um, you, you hear it, you know. If you, you don't tend to describe the adaptation of Tolstoy as a costume drama in quite right. the same way, and and, and, I, and I'm suspicious that there's a sort of undercurrent of sexism, which is which is basically saying these extraordinary authors, <laughs> Eliot, Austen, with their profound knowledge of the human condition, that an adaptation of their work is really as as surface as about the clothes that are chosen people to wear. Um, and and, and I think it it sets up a terrible sort of, I mean as a director you almost feel like you have to overcome it you have to kind of, oh god, you know the people think I'm just making a costume drama and and I'd I'd love to sort of unpack how that term even was arrived at
3: I also, I was, (laughs) sorry I I always (laughs) wonder when people because I do hear about Pride and Prejudice um, that that when it's described as a drama, because I Mm. think it's a romantic comedy really and the fact that they're Dressed in clothes of another of another time is sort of, you know, it's, that's right. it's maybe part of it, but it's not. It's pretty ir-
1: irrelevant, really. For that's that's right. And this film has wonderful comic scenes, one of which, got, of course, uh, notoriously gave, got it an R rating—the cursing scene.
2: Yeah, I mean, in in, you know, in the <laughs> UK, this is a family movie. <laughs> in Australia, it's a family movie. In Canada, it's a family movie. Um, sadly, in the United States of America, it is uh, to be ranked as exactly the same rating as Saw 4 in, <coughs> in 3D.
3: <laughs> but, but meanwhile, Meet the Fockers is a
1: family movie. That's right. Okay, right over there. Tom, I, I know you've done a lot of political... Uh, fil- films with political themes that you've humanized in South Africa uh, and elsewhere, and... and here you make reference. You know, Americans know about Nibble, Chamberlain as an appeaser, but you uh, suggest that you know King Edward and and Mrs Simpson had sympathies uh, for the Nazis. Uh, and that was sort of new to me. Uh,
2: true. Well, it's interesting. I actually i i i, I went down the, the i went down the route of making that theme much stronger, and then i and then i and then, I, and then I, the historian the historical advisors. Pointed out that there had been um, there was a very, there was a very influential documentary in England called Britain's Nazi King about Edward VIII, which which suggested that there was some kind of possibility of a collusion between Hitler and Edward, where you know Edward would, would come back to the throne in a, in a in a in a in a state in a country ruled by uh, Hitler, and 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 sadly for the people trying to make exciting documentaries, when you actually look at this a bit more closely um it is It is a gross sort of exaggeration. I think Edward, like Chamberlain and like Baldwin, made the same mistake which he felt you could reason with him, and It was a question of going to see him and sitting down and talking man to man um and He was an appeaser for which he's also um condemned and i and i and I find this way that we condemn the appeasers difficult because you know if if I imagine myself in that period 1938 1939 and you're thinking 20 years ago a million Englishmen lost their lives in a world war the idea of me being pro a world war or pro being pro-military would be abhorrent I mean I, I would have been a complete appeaser and although I would have been on the wrong side of history it, I, I would think it'd be unimaginable to be to be Vigorously advocating a return to war twenty years after such a, a worldwide catastrophe um but i think I think the mistake that they all made in the end is uh, is beautifully articulated by Baldwin when he said, well, none of us you know I did not understand the the complete absence of moral feeling that Hitler had, and you know in a story about disability where you have King George the Sixth suffering a speech disorder, you have Roosevelt in a wheelchair. You know, Hitler's disability was clearly uh, internal um, and fairly problematic.
1: Okay, let's take a few more. there's one right over there. Um, have you had any reaction from the royal family and any input from them? Has been any reaction from the royal family or input? I mean,
2: the frustration is, you know, really what I wanted to do was um, sit down uh, and um, have tea with the Queen. <laughs> And, you know, and say, tell me about your father. What do you remember about your father? But, of course, it's the one thing you can't do. Um, And it is very frustrating to feel that, uh, particularly for someone like me, when I really want to make it as truthful as possible. And I know, I mean, I know she could have told me things in five minutes that would have altered how I'd made the film. Mm. And I know there are things I must have got wrong, which she could have corrected at a moment. But... um, You know, they they have a policy of kind of non-involvement in fictional representations of of their family. If you're making a documentary, I think you can get access. Uh, But the truth is, we know, we still do not know if the Queen has watched the Queen Hmm. and if she did what she thinks, and that's a few years ago now, so uh, I may never know, you know, what she thinks of this, but if anyone ever finds out, for God's sake, come and find me. (laughs) <laughs>
1: okay, right over here. Just just for men. What are your opinions
2: of the royal family at the start of the movie or when you started making the movie changed from when you finished making the movie? Um I think I think I think it, I think it did slightly in that I'm I'm probably more republican than than um, I mean I, I, I'm possibly I'm probably a sort of I'm not necess- I'm, I'm 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 possibly supportive of them for for practical reasons, like like you know, given we live in sort of entertainment UK, they're an incredible asset in terms of sort of people's obsession with um, with those kind of stories, and and they obviously bring a massive income into the into the UK in terms of tourism. So I mean, practically, but I, mean, but I think I think what I found fascinating about doing it was that the the attack you would. Uh, use is that it, it surely it is unacceptable to have this kind of inherited privilege celebrated through the monarchy at the heart of our our country, and yet what's so fascinating about the story of King George the Sixth is it completely debunks the notion of privilege and renders it rather inadequate as an attack because you know okay his childhood well neglected by his parents abused by his nanny. You know, a left-handed retrained as a right hand. I mean, that it's definitely not a privileged childhood. Becoming king, in his case, a nightmare, not a privilege. And 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 the fact that that the, the attack of privilege is kind of dismantled in the case of him, I think, is a tremendously strong reason why the royal family has survived so robustly, because you know his daughter is in his tradition, and you look at her life and. I'm not sure even, I, th- I mean, I'm not sure, I think it is privileged. I mean, every day of the year she's booked doing duties. I mean, you know, I might complain about doing junkets, my film. Her life is a permanent junket. Her life is a permanent, at least I can express my opinions on things. It's a permanent junket where she can't express opinions on anything because it would be considered offensive. So, I mean, you know, so, 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 I, so I think weirdly like many things in life, going back the generation, you, you, you understand more about the survival of institutions than necessarily focusing on the present.
1: Okay, just uh, over here. Question from oh. Yeah.
3: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I don't know. I I mean, I spent a lot of time with Jeffrey. Oh, I mean, basically everything I did there was with Jeffrey. And there was more. So our marriage felt like more of a marriage um, because there were other scenes and there were other things and we rehearsed and um, it did feel like we spent... Um, a lot of time together. So it did feel like a very, I, I, I think it felt very, I had a real sense of, of Lionel and Myrtle. Um, and I think Jeffrey did too. Uh, and I, I don't know, they fit well together. I wasn't aware that we were different species, I suppose. I mean, he's such a, you know, he's he's such an amazing man and he's an amazing actor and um, his Lionel was so vital and big. As is, you know, Jeffrey and his um, his spirit and his personality. Uh, but no, I wasn't aware. See, I, that's a thing that you, you have an advantage now, and Tom hasn't had the advantage. Thank goodness, of of seeing the overall. All I saw was my, you know, what's what was on my plate, which was Myrtle, and um, so I wasn't aware of how she fit in with everybody else.
1: And so you didn't feel like she was supposed to be the kind of down to earth one, where he's you know he's obviously sort of a dreamer through the film. Somebody wants
3: you know there no because I think Tom is so good that and that he would that that was not something that I would have known about. What we talked about was um, the dynamic between them, um, which you know you you can't play. you know something so abstract but the dynamic between them and there actually was this whole thing that I suppose was part of it was that she wanted to go home Hmm. and so that was part of the reason why he kept his word to the king in in not telling her letting her in on what he was doing was because of course once he has his relationship with the king then they're not going to go home to Perth they're going to be stuck there in England so there was all that and so basically I, I think that I, I think it's nice that, I think it I mean they clearly made the right decision to cut all that but what's great is you kind of get what you're left with is that there's something real going on you're just not quite sure what it is
2: It's interesting I mean there's a scene that we cut straight after um, Jennifer discovers the king and queen in the parlour where she where where the sort of the mistruth or the, the untruth leads to through a series of you know through a series of um got conversation it leads to her basically saying that she'd always thought they were going to go home and now because of this they'll never go home and and, and Gen- Jennifer get, got very um, emotional in it and, and it was very fascinating for me as, when I was editing it because Jennifer, Jennifer's emotional power in that scene was so unbelievably strong that it actually... It almost upset the, the balance of the ecology of the movie because the, because the main character in the film... Is, is finds it so hard to emotionally express himself that if you have her character being that um, that powerfully emotionally expressive at that moment in the architecture, it, 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 it has a, a, an uncomfortable relationship um, to, to this theme, this incredible tension about the inability to express emotion. And in the end, when you're making a film about the inability to 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 exercise demons through the free expression of a and you're, 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 you're the open display of emotion is something you have to be very careful about and it's very fast you know, and that's what's interesting about editing is those things you don't see at the time um um become important but 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 oddly i'm i i do not regret having shot and and cuts and stuff because i think it actually meant that our sense of that marriage was much stronger than if we'd had only, if we'd only shot the scenes that were in the film
1: yeah i really do think that's true mm-hmm. Okay, take one more uh, from the audience over here. Uh, You've each mentioned rehearsal and the rehearsal process. I'm just wondering how much time was actually spent rehearsing
2: for this movie, and for Miss Ely and Miss Bloom, was it different than other movies you've been a part of, more beneficial? What do you think? Um, I mean, overall, we had three weeks of rehearsal, um, uh, (coughs) which uh, is incredibly unusual on a film. I mean, you know, normally you struggle to get a week uh, one of the things that made me happiest at the end was that was that Geoffrey said that it was the only time in his life that rehearsing for a film had been like rehearsing for a play in terms of feeling like we'd completely pulled it apart and rebuilt it and analysed every line um, having said that both Claire and Jennifer were, were because of availability were, were less able to do you know? It was quite as much of a rehearsal as that, but uh, you know, for me, it's vital, and for me, it's where you workshop a script. And the script was wonderful to start with, but but there was not a line that we didn't pour over and think, can we improve? And and, and a lot of the way I think in the end I arrive at character with the actors is is actually through incredibly close interrogation of the text because because the cho you know to me choice of vocabulary, choice of a single word. Tells you something about a, a, a character, and and and, and through workshopping a script, it's often a very good way to to get into very specific discussion about character, which doesn't involve an actor constantly putting a character on his feet. And, and you know, because I didn't want Colin to have to be doing lots of you know stammering rehearsals, where we, you know I wanted to keep that fresh energy for the for the moment. So it's, it's 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 also a way to to get very detailed about character without without exhausting it as a piece of performance.
3: It was. I mean, I was only there for. I just came in at the end um so I was there for 2 days uh of rehearsal but then the rehearsals every day of filming were also um vigorous and it really was I think it was the only uh, I haven't done that much but it was the only job I have done that involved filming that involved rehearsal where it actually I think made a huge difference to the to
0: every to to, to the work and to the finished product. Um, I'm being very silent because I wasn't there. <laughs> um, I wish I had been because I think it, it, it's such a wonderful thing to have rehearsal time before a film. And I have done few, but some films where we have had that and time to really analyze the script and to talk between us about the characters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, in this particular instance, uh, I missed out on that. and And I'm sorry because I think it's often... The most exciting part of a, of a movie. I, I still, as a stage actor, cannot get over the fact that y- you go into a, a, a film onto a film stage, meet someone you've never seen before, and do the scene. I mean, I know that's the way it's done. It's. I think it's. It demands an awful lot of skill to do that without real preparation. And that's of course, the way things are done now i mean this this was a huge exception, must have been a gigantic exception wasn't so much in my day because things weren't that expensive blah 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 but um yeah, for instance, a television you're just thrown into it without a chance to, to to do any work other than the work you have to have done yourself. Uh, which is a very long-winded way of saying I wasn't there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just as a last question, and this is sort of a big one, but if you could talk about your approach to, st- to to style on the film or what you sort of had in mind artistically, because I think it's a great accomplishment. You, um, There's a real intimacy to the film. You, you it's, There's sort of an epic scope to the film, but there's a real intimacy in the way you film. And I know maybe there are things you do with the type of lens you use and things like that, but there's a real um, strong artistic control that you feel in every frame of the film.
2: I certainly wanted to subvert what I perceive to be clichés of films about royals. I mean, I, I know directors can become intoxicated by by the pageantry, by the theatricality, by gold and guilt and, and words like lavishness. And um, I, I wanted to get away from that and find a much more austere center to the to the picture um and i felt that all the research i did backed me up and i'll give you you know a specific example which is that, that the, the script i started with had bertie being dressed in royal finery in a plumed hat and a uniform and a sword and he went to wembley where he's where he's joined he goes on a big canopied stage and his father's there and he's dressed in a plumed hat and a sword and and then I found a little bit of archive footage of the real Wembley exhibition. And he's just wearing a black overcoat and a black hat. And he looks, he's dressed identically to every other man in the stadium. He's an everyman figure. His father's not there. There's no canopied stage. Uh, the day is grey and smoggy and rainy. Wembley looks like it's falling apart, even though it's only built two years before and out of that came this image of a of a man dressed in black against a dirty brick wall looking scared out of his wits which is how we meet uh the duke of york and and I'd like this idea of there being no barrier between us and him that he's a human first and 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 this role comes second um i think the other thing as i became very you know, I, I realized early on that the dominant language of the film had to be the close-up because so much, because stammering is best revealed in close-up. It's the, through that shot you see the pain in the eyes and the poignancy of the struggle, and 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 knowing that it was all therefore about how to find a cinematic way of handling the close-up, and I, I chose to shoot the close-ups on you know, particularly with Colin and Jeffrey, on quite wide lenses, so the camera was maybe you know, that far away from from them. Um, and and by using wider lenses it it bring it keeps the physical space in the frame all the time you know the the classic hollywood long lens close up abstracts the face from the background it's just a, it's just an out of focus mush whereas here the the the, 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 the set is always part of it and, and 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 why that was important to me is I was trying to find a visual analog for what stammering is. And I felt that stammering is about inhabiting silence and absence and nothingness. And so I became preoccupied by this notion of framing, framing Colin's face in relationship to negative space, so in relationship to big empty walls, to big distressed walls, um, you know, to big nothings. Uh, while with Geoffrey, you know, he's always framed against the clutter of the consulting room, the fireplace... The, you know, the books, the equipment. So, 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 Colin, you have a sense of alienation against these stark walls. Sometimes he's hunkered down in the corner of frame, and Jeffrey is always an image of warm domesticity. And that, and that structural division is quite clearly delineated.
1: Thank you. Well, you've made a, a an acclaimed movie, but it's also a really great audience film, and I know everybody appreciated it. So, thanks for all of you, uh, to all of you, for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.